say that if you are a first-time guest here, uh, we want to welcome you specifically by saying there are Connect bags, gift bags for you at the Connect table as you're leaving today. Please stop by and grab those. You have a couple uh, gifts just to say thanks for being our guest, guest today, and we would love to know how we can uh, best get you connected to the life of our church. If you are a part of our church family, you know we are working through the book of Mark, and we will be in Mark 12 today. So go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word and find Mark 12. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17, uh, a very short passage, and yet a passage that has a lot of weight to it. Most of us, if I, if I took a poll and asked, who can say the Pledge of Allegiance by memory— most of you would probably be able to do that because we grew up maybe in elementary school saying the Pledge of Allegiance every morning during the school announcements or something like that, the Pledge of Allegiance. It's kind of all over the place in uh, the, the nation we live in. Now, here, here's the question for the Christian. If our ultimate allegiance is to Christ, if we say, we, yes, we are one nation under God, but what does it look like for me to live under God in this nation? Uh, we deal with all kinds of questions, such as, how do I view the authority of the government while at the same time submitting to the authority of Christ? How should I live whenever there are things perhaps that take place in the government that I would disagree with? Do I continue to submit as a way to honor the authority that God has put over me? When? Should I make the choice to defy what the government has put in place as a way to honor God? How does my view of the government that God has placed over me ultimately display the way that I view God's authority over myself and the world? Wow, can you imagine that we get to talk about all of that today? And, and I'm here, so if anybody wants to switch places with me right now, this is your time. No, the Bible has a lot to say about this. And so to summarize what Jesus will say in a statement, it is this, that we should obey God and honor the earthly authorities that he has put in place. That we should obey God and honor the earthly authorities that he has put in place. And that those are not in opposition to one another. Whenever we get to Mark 12, let me remind you where we're at. It is Passover week. So we know that on Friday of this week, Jesus will be on the cross. Sunday, he will be resurrected, proving to, to the watching world and for the rest of history that he is the king of kings, as we just sang, his authority over everything. And what happened in the passage leading up to this? Well, Jesus went into the temple. There were these leaders, the Sanhedrin, uh, so you have the chief priests, you have the scribes and the elders, and they make up kind of this leading supreme court. And he goes into the temple, and he literally and figuratively turns the tables on them. And he flips over the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who are trading pigeons that are overpriced. He goes in and, and says, hey, these are the guys that are the leading authority, supposedly, on all things religious, spiritual and, and have kind of the, the authority that they have claimed to these things. And Christ exposed them, exposes them as corrupt, uh, that they are those who have missed the mark. And so here, what we're going to find in this passage is that, yes, he has established his authority, and they're going to ask him a question 
about how his authority now relates to the authority of the government. And so this is how our time will look today. We're going to have one conversation in view, and it's verses 13 through 17. And then I want to give you two principles out of that that will kind of help us with everyday life. All right, so one conversation. What do we see? It's about God's kingdom and the government's authority. So if you have your passage in front of you, you can look up on the screen if you need to. We're going to read verses 13 through 17. It says, And they, being the Sanhedrin, sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. What do we see here in this conversation that is both about God's kingdom and the government's authority? Well, let's first begin by who is in this passage. Verse 13 tells us that they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Well, since the question that they asked last week about authority led to Jesus telling this parable that kind of caused the Sanhedrin to back off a little bit, they now send these two groups to Jesus to ask this question. It's the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, those two groups don't exist today. So at our first reading of this, we can kind of think this is no big deal. This is just a descriptor of two groups of people. But these people could not be in greater opposition to one another. Okay, so think like Bengals and Steelers fans or Michigan and Ohio State fans, uh, you know, cat people and dog people, right? This is even like a greater opposition here because the Pharisees, what are they known for? Well, they were those who were waiting for this king, the Messiah, who would come from a Davidic line and ultimately overthrow pagan power, being ultimately Rome. So whenever it came to politics, they are anti-Rome. And then you have the other group, the Herodians. You can kind of tell by their name. They were big fans of King Herod. Uh, They were for the politics of Herod, him being in power. Ultimately, they were for the policies of Rome. Now, yes, they had kind of motives in the back of their mind thinking, okay, one day this will lead to our restoration and freedom. But whenever you look at these two people, you think they would never have anything in common. And yet, they have found something to agree upon. They have reached this position of unity in one thing. Jesus has to go. He's a threat to our power, to our authority by establishing his authority. And so what do they do? They come up with this plan to trap him. Now, the word that is used here is only used once in the New Testament. So uh, it's called a hapax legomenon, all right? You never find it again anywhere else. And it carries with it the tactics that you would use to corner an animal that has no other choice, no other place to go. Either way leads to destruction. Uh, It actually reminded me whenever I was thinking about this of whenever I was like 10 years old and my aunt and uncle's house was infested with mice. And I'm like, you know, standing on one side of the TV cabinet with a badminton racket and my uncle's on the other side with a spatula. And I'm thinking, all right, there's only two options for this guy and they are both bad. Uh, now, thankfully for the mouse, he took advantage of my awkward preteen coordination, and he survived. 
They, they feel like, okay, we've got Jesus kind of behind the TV cabinet. There, there's no way out. If he, if he goes this direction and says, no, 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 you don't need to pay taxes to Caesar. God is the ultimate authority. Then they'll say, ah, sedition. Are you seeking to rebel against the government? Caesar, this guy, he's causing a revolt. He's causing a riot. You got to stop him now. But then if he says, well, just pay taxes uh, to Caesar. Do whatever Caesar tells you to do. And they'll say, well, do you not acknowledge the ultimate authority that God has over all creation? Is he not the one who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and yet now you're telling us to obey the government in, in totality? Well, what is he going to do here? Well, he shows that he is wise. Uh, that in a way, they think they have him trapped, and he's actually going to reveal their hypocrisy, use great wisdom, proving that the one who is greater than Solomon has come. He's ultimately going to point them to God and reveal that these are not opposing duties that they are called to, but that it's possible to both obey God and the authority, the earthly authority that he has put in place. Now, I think we can learn something from Jesus here. He's put on the hot seat to answer a yes or no question. And yet what he does is he doesn't answer their question directly, but backs up and he's going to give a biblical principle. Now, this is just you everyday life, something that I would say would be wise for you to do whenever you're kind of put in a situation uh, where you're, you know, Thanksgiving at the dinner table and you get blindsided by a question or a coworker, you know, kind of throws something that's difficult at you and you kind of feel like you're pushed into this position where you have to answer yes or no. Like if someone says, uh, do you think that the government should have the right to tell a woman what to do with her body? Wow. Okay. So, so you need to back up and say, okay, I've been put in this position where there's a yes or no question presented, and yet my call is to give the biblical principle. And, and so you say something like, well, the Bible teaches that, that both the mother and the unborn child matter to God, uh, that he cares about both, and both of their rights. Actually, to be pro-human rights is not to be anti-woman rights because the child in the womb is either man or woman to elevate human dignity and value based in the image of God is to go to the biblical principle and to place your argument there instead of being forced into a yes or no question uh, that could lead to a volatile response where ultimately your response could be turned into a soundbite. See, Jesus here avoids the yes or no and yet offers a biblical explanation of the question at hand. So here they put Jesus in this position, and note that they begin with flattery. It's a setup. They say, Jesus, we know that you, you're a teacher who, you truly teach uh, the, the ways of God. Verse 14, you don't care about anyone's opinion. That's probably not the greatest way to word that, right? Jesus does care about us. And yet, the point they're making is, you're not swayed by appearances. Literally, you don't look into the face of someone. And we know that Christ looks into the heart. This will be bad news for these guys because he's going to reveal their motive, not that they're trying to obey, but ultimately oppose Christ and his power. And so they ask, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, when have taxes not been a touchy subject? I mean, nobody loves taxes. Everybody's, you know, frustrated about taxes. I get it. But for this time period, this was a particularly touchy subject because the tax at hand is the Roman head tax or the Roman poll tax. 
Judea, Israel, had been a Roman province since 63 B.C., all right? So, so uh, we're kind of in this time period now in the 30s A.D., all right? So they've been a Roman province since 63 B.C. Now, the interesting thing is that in 6 A.D., Caesar began requiring all of the Jews to pay this head tax, which was a tax that was a denarius. It was, you know, an average day's wage for the working class. So not really that much money, and they had to pay this every year. Now, the reason that they did not like that tax is because by, by paying that tax, you are recognizing, I'm, I'm under the government of Caesar. Uh, they, they almost said, wait, is this recognizing the, the false deity uh, that Caesar claims to have. So this was a touchy subject, so touchy uh, that, you know, 25 years before this conversation, there was a guy named Judas, the Galilean, and he staged a revolt uh, saying, we shouldn't have to pay the tax. He tried to get as many Jews together as he could to kind of revolt against the government, and ultimately it fizzled out. And what do we find here? That there is another Galilean on the scene. Jesus from Galilee, and he is not staging a revolt, but he is creating a cosmic revolution that will turn all the kingdoms of the world on their head because he will establish an eternal rule. So he listens to their question, should we pay taxes or not? This is a touchy issue. They think they've got him trapped going one way or the other, and what does Jesus do? Well, first, he exposes their hearts. Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And what happens? One of these guys standing there pulls out a denarius and hands it to him. He just exposed their hypocrisy. He's saying, you're asking all these questions about, well, should we do this? Should we be a part of this system of government? Should we participate in their economic system? And he says, hey, bring me a denarius. And they're like, oh, we got one right here. Your currency just exposed that that you are already a part of the system. You're submitting to this economy, this government. He exposes their hypocrisy. They're not really wrestling with this in their hearts. They're just trying to, to catch Jesus in a moment that they can oppose him to, to reject his authority. And he, so, he, so he says, hand me a denarius. He lifts it up and he says, whose image and whose inscription is on this? Well, what what is the image on there? It was the image of Tiberius Caesar. He was the Caesar at that time. And then Jesus says, what is the inscription on this? And this is interesting because the inscription on this coin in Latin read Tiberius Caesar, the son of God, Augustus. You see this rumor began that Augustus was deified after he died. And so Tiberius Caesar, son of Augustus, received this name, the Son of God. Here he is. He's, he's this great person of position and power. Not only that, on the flip side of the coin were the words Pontifex Maximus, which meant the great high priest. He is the one who mediates for all who are under his rule between here, earthly man, and, and this great deity, Augustus. Not only that, the image on the back of the coin on the flip side of his face was the image of Pax, the Roman goddess of peace. And so here on this denarius, the false claims of a mortal man are, I'm the son of God. I'm the arbiter of peace for all who are in my kingdom, that I have the ability to mediate for you if you would just submit to me. 
And it's amazing. This is so full of irony that Christ holding that coin had come to truly fulfill the claims that were made by that mortal man, that he indeed was the king who was the son of God, who took on flesh, that he was the high priest who would mediate for all who would come to him, one who sympathizes with our weakness and pleads our case before God the Father, that he is the one who brings peace, as Romans 5.1 says, that because we are justified through Christ, we now have peace with God. And so holding up that coin, Jesus gives an answer that was unexpected. He says, render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. Now, he changes the word because they were asking basically what should we pay whenever it comes to taxes. But he uses a word that literally means this is a debt that you owe. Uh, the, the coins, the denarius, were literally minted out of the wealth of Caesar. And so Jesus is saying, if you're going to use the money that was given by Caesar, then you owe a debt to Caesar and you should pay it. And at the same time, with all that God has entrusted to you, you should be faithful with that. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. And upon hearing this, the response of the people in verse 17 is that they marveled at him. Now, when has that ever been the conclusion of a political debate? Normally it's anger, normally it's division, perhaps a name calling. And here, there is a unity, perhaps an unwanted unity between the Pharisees and the Herodians. But their jaws drop and they marvel at his wisdom. They sought to trap him and instead were ensnared by their own words. Uh, The prophecy made 700 years before by Isaiah has come to pass. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. You see, Jesus' answer uh, not only answers their question, but invites them to give something far more costly than a denarius. Jesus is asking for their whole life. Jesus answers a question they never asked in his answer. It it goes something like this. How much of this denarius should I give to Caesar? Well, whose image is on the denarius? Well, it's Tiberius Caesar. Well, you know what? Because the image of Tiberius Caesar is on that coin, give the whole coin to Tiberius Caesar. And then the subtle question Uh, that that rises to the top in Jesus' answer is, whose image is on you? How much of yourself belongs to God? Genesis 1, 26 and 27 comes to mind where God in Trinity, in perfect community, says, let us make man in our Likeness. Verse 27 says that God created man in his own image. And to all standing there and all hearing now, Christ says, whose likeness is on you? Whose image is on you? How much of your life should you give to God? Render to God what is God's. And in that moment, Christ lays claim to our complete humanity. The authority of Christ's kingdom transcends all others. The kingdoms of this world will rise and fall, and yet Christ will never be dethroned. Uh, He is a ruler who reigns eternally. 
he wasn't threatened by Caesar because he's not establishing a political kingdom. He is establishing a kingdom that is not of this world. Yes, Caesar might be able to lay claim to their money, but only Christ could lay claim to their souls. And so here we see this conversation take place, and two principles will will be lifted from that. And the first one is this, that we should obey God and abide by the government's rules. We should obey God and abide by the government's rules. Now, what Jesus gives to us here in principle, I want to flesh out with the words of both Paul and Peter. And so Paul in Romans 13 tells us this. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he, being the government, does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So here we are looking at this passage. I was talking to Abby about this sermon last night, and I said, you know, I think this sermon in a way will almost feel like a documentary (laughs) in that it's helpful, and we need to know these things, and yet I don't think there will be a moment that you're necessarily driven to tears here, or you're like, yeah, that's, oh my gosh, I'm just overwhelmed by, you know, just like the way that, but, but man, we see God's goodness here. We see God's wisdom here, and so I hope that this is a help to you and that you'll be helped in the same way that I was this week as I, as I think about these things and ultimately the way that it displays my trust in God, because what has Paul just said? Whenever we submit to the authorities that God has put in place, we honor the God that put them there. Uh, We see that Paul is able to talk about a pagan government that's actually even persecuting the church, and he says, hey, these are are ministers of God. These These are people that God has established and put in place for your good. In fact, uh, to disobey the, the laws that they have put in place would be sin. And so, so don't go against these commands of the land for both the sake of your own conscience, that your conscience would be distorted, and then that would lead uh, to kind of this skewed view of obedience to God in other areas of life, and also because of the wrath of God is stored up against those who disobey Him and ultimately show, I don't trust God because I'm not trusting His sovereignty in those who are in power. Don't worry, I'll qualify this in a little bit, but, but I want you to feel the weight of this for a minute. Paul is saying to, to disobey the government is sin against God. And so that means that we shouldn't defraud the government by lying about how much income we make. Uh, we should submit to the laws of God, even something like the drinking age being 21. And you may think, well, you know what, I think that's more of a maturity issue that, you know, can't be judged by, you know, putting an age or a number there. 
Well, the law of the land is that the drinking age is 21, and so we submit. We obey God by honoring the authority and the laws that are put in place. Perhaps another case study would be if you're coming home uh, late one night this week and, you know, you get stopped at a red light, you know that red lights exist for safety reasons, and you look both ways kind of at all the intersections, and you're saying, look, there's no oncoming traffic. I think that I could just kind of go straight through this red light, and I would be safe. I don't think there would be any legal ramifications because I don't see any police officers present. Uh, I think that I could do this, and it really wouldn't harm anybody. What do you do in that moment? Do you submit to the law that has been put in place? Yes. Why? Because ultimately, we submit uh, to the authorities, the laws that are put in place as a way to obey God and to honor Him. See, Peter wrote about this too, so you're not just like, well, that was kind of Paul's view on it. No. Here we have Paul, we have Peter saying in 1 Peter 2, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. You see, here Peter is saying that honoring the government is actually a matter of our Christian witness. He says that whenever you live peaceably among others, you actually silence people who oppose the gospel. This is a matter of Christian witness. You're saying, look, I, I trust God. I, I, I maybe don't fully understand this or I have my positions on this. And yet, it is a way to say, you know what, there's actually something greater at play here. You know, I care about this, but I belong to a greater kingdom. Not only that, uh, Peter warns us that we could have this tendency to, to kind of use our Christian freedom to shirk the laws that are in the land. And so what does he say there in, in verse 16? Live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. You see, just as we learned in Mark 12, that, that obeying the government is not equal to opposing God, that there are parallel duties in place. The church uh, gives communion. The government bears the sword. There, there's not an, a direct opposition here. Now, with all of this talk about obeying the government, I, I feel the question arising, well, what should we do whenever the government's laws actually lead to sin? When submitting to the government that is above us actually causes us to disobey a law of God? Well, in those cases, perhaps as rare or maybe as prevalent as they are in some places, there is license for civil disobedience. And we see this in Scripture. In Exodus 1, what happens? Pharaoh commands the Hebrew midwives to, to destroy every male Hebrew that is born. And the midwives, they don't listen to Pharaoh. They defy the government authority, and they save those boys. And what happens? They're commended because they fear God. I think the book of Daniel also has a lot of examples of this. You see that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, were commanded by King Nebuchadnezzar to bow down and worship him as God. And what do they do? They say, no. And they accept the consequence of being thrown into the fiery furnace, and God preserves them. And you see later in Daniel 6 where, uh, you know, 
Darius, King Darius says uh, this, this law, this decree goes out. No one can pray to any other God. And they spy out Daniel and he's in his room praying three times a day. And what happens? They bring him before Darius. Is this true? Daniel says, yes, I've continued to break your law and pray to the God I worship. And what happens? He's thrown into the den of lions. Now, what do we see here? That whenever Christians are asked to do something or put under a law that goes contrary to God's law and command, there is right, there is license for civil disobedience. And for our brothers and sisters around the world that live under totalitarian governments where uh, it is outlawed to practice Christianity, where you can't gather in groups as Christians, where you can't own a Bible, then this is not a hypothetical scenario. We should be driven to pray for them, pray for their rulers and leaders that their hearts would be softened to the good news of Christ. Oh, we think about uh, the difficulty, the pains that they have to go through just to follow Christ against their government. And we say, yeah, that's, that's righteous. That is good. We also see here by looking at the book of Daniel that disobedience to the government to, to follow Christ uh, unless you can flee from that government, also means accepting whatever consequences that come with it, right? There are Christian martyrs who give evidence to that, that there are times that, yes, even your own life will be the cost of obeying God in defiance of the government. We think about the world that we live in as uh, issues on gender and marriage become more and more volatile, it makes you wonder if simply teaching the Bible as truth would one day be labeled as hate speech. And what do we do? We don't back down from Scripture. No, we lovingly, honestly, gently, but truthfully proclaim God's Word. Uh, think about if you were a Christian living in the Jim Crow era. What do you do? Well, you fight for equality because that is a biblical principle. Oh, we defy any law that the government would create that would go against the truth of Scripture. So what does that mean in summary? Well, we obey the government to honor God, and whenever obeying the government means dishonoring God, then we choose to honor God and obey Him. Uh, we only seek to defy the laws of the land whenever it means defying the laws of the Lord. I think a good example of this uh, was actually kind of within the past year, a lawsuit that took place in Washington, D.C. with Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Some of you may be familiar with this. Some of you may not. So I'll explain what happened. Uh, in March of 2020, Capitol Hill, like most churches, stopped meeting together as COVID was spreading. And uh, kind of as months went on, September of 2020, they said, we want to gather again. We're willing to gather outside. We're gather." or we're willing to, to use all precautions. And so in that time, uh, Washington, D.C. had a policy that any outdoor gathering, even if it was completely outside, socially distanced, everyone was wearing masks, could not exceed 100 people present. Didn't matter how big the park was, you couldn't go anywhere. And so Capitol Hill Baptist Church said, we want to gather as a body. And the mayor of D.C. said, uh, no, you can continue to meet virtually as a church, which they weren't even doing. So he's saying, you can meet virtually as a church. And they said, no, Scripture defines the church as a community of Christians that gathers to worship, not an event to be watched and streamed online. So you can do whatever you want uh, with that definition of the church, but I think it's a really good one. 
And so the elders came back and they said that. And, and then the, the mayor of D.C. said no. They, they filed for waivers. And they said, you know, what if we, what if we spread out further? What if we go to a, a really big park? Like, we want to gather together. And the mayor said no, all the while uh, granting exceptions for other groups that wanted to meet together in groups of 250 or even 500 in, in D.C. outdoor socially. And so, man, they, they grew uh, kind of, they, they sought justice. They said, what do we do? And yet they wanted to obey the Lord. They wanted to submit to the government that was in charge. And so they filed this lawsuit. They began uh, meeting outdoors just over the river in Virginia so they could continue to gather on Sundays as a church family. Uh, they pled their case and they sought justice through the system that God has provided. And eventually they won that case. Now, here's why I think that this is such a good example because they peaceably fought for justice within the system that God provided. Uh, they continued to obey the laws of the government while also expressing their concerns, their biblical conviction. And, and they continued to obey the Lord by finding a way to gather as the body of Christ and to continue to be obedient to him. And, and eventually through that process, now they're, they're meeting again, they're gathering in their worship auditorium as they were before. Now, why is this so important to see? Because I think it gives us a case study of how to live this out in our world. I think it also invites us to recognize that these issues are difficult. Like, whenever it comes to politics and government, we have blind spots, we all do, which is why it's so necessary to have a Christian community that we're a part of, uh, that we can kind of say, hey, you know what? Uh, our work is doing this mandatory thing, and it's, you know, kind of, lifting up this value that I, I don't agree with, what would you do in that situation? Well, let's open scripture. Let's crack it open. Let's see what God says about this. In Christian community, you're able to talk through these things, which is why I would say, hey, if you're not a part of a Bible teaching, Bible believing church, you need to be a part of one. Uh, of course, I'm biased. I'd love for you to be here, but it's important to have a Christian community that you're walking alongside with that um, tears or no tears, that, that we can come to a passage like this and be informed by the conviction of Scripture. The second thing I want you to see in this passage is that belonging to God changes how we behave in His world. I think in a sermon like this, it would be easy to drift maybe into a political focus and, you know, uh, if Jesus ran for president, what party would he belong to? Like, I don't know. I'm just, you know, I'm not that guy. Like, we'll never have that sermon at the Oaks. I want our main point to be Jesus's main point. What does he say? Who do you belong to? Whose image is on you? Who lays claim to your life? Because God's image is upon you, you belong to him. It reminds me of uh, question one in the New City Catechism. Some of you are familiar with this because we give these books away to our parents and to our kids. Uh, it's the same as the Heidelberg Catechism or similar to it. What is our only hope in life or death? Is there a more significant question to ask? What's your only hope? No, more than that, what is your only hope in life? And additionally, what is your only hope whenever you get to your final breath? The question is this, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer is that we are not our own, but belong to God. 
We're not our own, but we belong to God. What is your only hope? The Heidelberg Catechism asks the question, what is your only comfort? What is your solace? What are you living for? What, what is your place of stability? Is it saying, well, you know, I've been saving for a lot of years, and I think if some kind of financial crisis happened, I think I would be okay. Like, that would be a great hope for me to have. Or, you know, I've really invested my time and energy into my education, and so I'm almost certain that I'll get the job that I want as soon as I graduate. That's my hope. My only hope is that if I, if I just could find a spouse, then, you know, I think my life would really be complete. We have these hopes. I'm, I'm really healthy, so I don't think that I would ever get sick. I do what I can in the way that I eat and the vitamins that I take, that I'm just kind of building up this hope for myself. Is that a sufficient hope? No. The only hope that anybody could have is belonging to God, not being your own. What is your only hope in death? Whenever you stand before the living God one day, will you just kind of lift up a laundry list of good works that you tried to complete in your time on earth? What is your only hope in death? It was, is it because you walked an aisle or filled out a card or, or because you got dunked in water? Or does your life actually display that you wholly belong to God. See, I, this is an invitation for every person here who might say, you know what, I, I don't live like I belong to God. I don't think I belong to God. If you're here and you're not a Christian and, and, and you're saying, you know what, I've, I've kind of sought this freedom of not having to obey anyone, not obeying God. Maybe I know that he's there, but I'm not obeying to him. And yet the freedom that you have sought has left you actually feeling like an orphan living in a world that can't make sense apart from belonging to God. And maybe you're here and you're a Christian and you've forgotten what it means to belong to God. You're kind of living in, in this state of fear. Or maybe you're kind of under the weight of a crippling sin that has brought harm to you. Or you've simply forgotten the joy of what it means to belong to God. Let me encourage you. Christ came that we might belong to God. Just days after this conversation, Christ would go to the cross because he was sent by the Father to atone for our sins. Our sinful hearts, our corrupt nature, and our rebellion against God the Father placed us on a path to hell and under the kingdom of darkness. And yet Christ came as the King of kings to liberate us from sin, to satisfy the wrath of God by taking our place upon the cross not only did he die, that his blood would be shed to redeem us, but he was resurrected to proclaim to the entire world, to the entire universe, that he is king of kings, ruling over sin, Satan, and death, that no one will compete for his throne. You see, to belong to Christ is to live differently in the world. Philippians 3.20 keys us in on this unique reality that the Christian is a dual citizen. That yes, we belong a part of the world. And yet, as Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. And because that is true, we live radically different. So how do we apply this practically? It is to live in this way. To live as those that have been bought with a price, that we now belong to God. As 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Glorify God. There are some things that perhaps are legal that the government condones and yet are not wise and are not helpful for the Christian. Sure, it is legal maybe to gamble, but is it wise to use the money that God has given you to steward in that way? Titus 2.14 states three things about us. 
It says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. See, Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. We don't have to live in these patterns of sin to purify us. What is your status in the eyes of God if you belong to Christ? Completely pure, not defined by sin, guilt, or past regret. And now your future is filled with good works because you were created as the workmanship of God to walk in them. So we live for Christ. We seek peace with others. Jesus was placed in this position that was politically charged, an emotional debate, and what does he do? He brings peace. Some of us need to care more about being righteous than being right when it comes to these issues. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be the children of God. What does it look like to bring peace as Christ has brought peace between us and God? It is to submit to him, to know him, to belong to him. So live with the joy of knowing that you belong to Christ. Regardless of who sits in the oval office, Christ sits enthroned above the earth. May we obey God. May we honor the earthly authorities that he has put in place. And we pledge our allegiance to Christ. Let's pray.